You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Do you have an estate plan yet? It's so important to make sure your hard-earned money goes to the people and charities you care about most. Learn more about how estate planning fits into your financial plan with a complimentary wealth checkup. Schedule yours at planefe.com slash hermoney or by calling 833-304-PLAN. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think we all have to be a steward of good tech. And those of us that make tech in particular, you know, you have an obligation to prepare society to be able to thrive with the next era. And you have an obligation to have society trust the technology, prepare them to thrive. And I think you have an obligation about an inclusive workforce. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. We are tackling a big topic today, so get ready. We're talking about corporations and what we as consumers should expect from them. I've been thinking about this off and on since 2020 when we saw dozens of companies commit time and money to racial justice. And I thought about it again last year. When the founder of Patagonia, Ivan Schwinard, gave up ownership of his company to a trust so that all profits could be used to fight climate change. The reality is, today when we think about working for a company or becoming a customer of a company, we care about much more than just how much money they make or even how good their product is. We want to know that they care about the issues that we care about. A survey from the Harris Poll last year found 82% of consumers prefer a brand's values to match their own, and they are willing to change their shopping habits if that isn't the case. Research from Edelman also shows the majority of people expect company CEOs to weigh in on important conversations about the economy, wage equality, climate change, and discrimination. In other words, there is an expectation now that companies have a responsibility to make the world a better place. I 100% agree. And I think it's great that shoppers are voting with their wallets. At Her Money, we advocate for supporting women-owned and minority-owned businesses every day. But I also think that there is a lot of pessimism about whether companies are up to the challenge. A Gallup poll from 2022 found 53% of people have a negative view of big business. That is up 14% from a decade before. And that same Edelman study found half of people do not think businesses are doing enough to fight climate change and income inequality. All of this leads us to the question, what does it really mean for businesses to be good, not as PR, but as part of their mission? 
What does it take on a tactical level when it comes to funding and spending and hiring? And what does it look like for all of us, consumers and workers, to use our agency for good? Jenny Rometty is an expert on this topic. She is the former chairman, president, and CEO of IBM. She was the very first woman to lead that company, and over the course of her 40-year career there, she helped IBM reinvent 50% of its portfolio and build a $25 billion, billion with a B, dollar, hybrid cloud business. She was also named Fortune Magazine's number one most powerful woman three years in a row, and today she serves as the co-chair of 110, a coalition of companies committed to upskilling, hiring, and promoting 1 million Black Americans by the year 2030 into family-sustaining jobs and careers. And she has written a book about how companies and individuals can create meaningful change. It's called Good Power, Leading Positive Change in Our Lives, Work, and and world. Ginny, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here. Oh, Jean, thank you. And thanks for that more than kind introduction. But uh, it seems like the book aligns with a lot of what you started to talk about. It absolutely does. The word power is, I think, a really interesting one. I mean, sometimes it has some negative connotations. How do you define good power versus bad power? Yeah, it actually is a pretty emotive word. Many people, when you bring up the word, have a really negative emotive reaction to the word power. They think that it's pretty selfish, centered on one person. There's a winner and a loser, that it is done usually with fear. And it's funny, when I interview and talk to a lot of younger people, I'll say, you know, well, do you want to be powerful? And people say, no, I would just like to change and do good things. I'm, I say to them, well, the irony is you have to have power to do those things. And it kind of brought me full circle to this idea, just given the life I've led and the experience I've had, that good power is meant to me to mean you can do really hard things, but you can do them in a positive way. And positive meaning with respect, not fear. You can do them by loving tension, not dividing people. And you can celebrate progress, not perfection, because perfection, you know, sort of pushes people to winner and losers in this topic. And everybody listening has a choice on this topic. And it doesn't matter if your job is big, little, no job, does not matter. You all have the ability to, you know, really drive a change. And it does grow over time, you know, with your ability and your experiences. And I also think, you know, kind of sums up if I said that how you do things might just matter as much as what you do. So that's, to me, what good power. It's a how as much as a what. It's interesting how polarizing it is. My husband used to have this favorite litmus test quiz that he would give people where he asked, power, fame, love, or money, rank them. And people never chose power. Everybody chose love because they felt like they should or maybe because they really believed it. But power very, very rarely ended up on the top. Yeah, I think it's negative. That's why. So anyways, the world needs good power. You were raised by a single mom, didn't have an easy upbringing after your father left your family when you were just 16, left you and your mom and your three siblings in a, a very tough financial situation. How did that shape you to be who you are today? And how did that influence what you wanted to do with your work life and career? 
It's a question I think everybody should go back in time, whether they're, you know, early in career, mid or later, doesn't matter, and think about their beginning. Because I didn't realize how much it had influenced me until I really stepped back and thought about it. And my dad did abandon my mom and our whole family. When I was 16, my my siblings were all much younger, but my mom was only 34 years old. And she had never had a job outside of the home. She had never had any education past high school and, you know, had not really not prepared. And my dad, I walked into the room in the garage when he was telling my mother, look, I don't care what happens to you. I don't care what happens to any of you. Uh, You can go work on the street for all I care. And he turned and left. And that would be it. And my mom then found herself with, you know, four kids, no money, no home. She had to keep a roof on us, had to keep us fed, keep us in school. And she you know, never cried. But I, what I watched and what I learned to your real question was, um, you know, she went back to school little by little, got just enough education to get an hourly job, a little more to get a better one, a little more, never getting a degree, but enough to fi- eventually take us off of food stamps, off of welfare, off of aid, you know, be able to take care of us. And a couple things. One was, you know, I, I look at that and I say, well, I've come to conclude hard work does make things better. I know that's somewhat of a controversial subject, but it's kind of a basic point. The second thing, though, I witnessed watching that was that never let someone else define you. And my mom was so clear that my dad would not define her as a victim. And so I always say, when my mom had nothing, she had power to change that situation. And she had nothing else. But She was just determined that this would not be how it would end. She wouldn't end as a victim of my dad, and she did change it. My brothers and sisters are equally, if not more, successful than I. You know, my mom always says, what did I ever do? And it was just watching her. And the third thing was, which is now you said, how does it pervade your life? My mom was smart, actually, but she had no access to opportunity. And that idea that aptitude is spread evenly in the world, but opportunity is absolutely not spread evenly. And so I would always remember that those are two different things, which takes me to what you know you said I do today. And it would impact my entire career and my view of leadership about getting more opportunity to more people. And the last point, just and it does really align, Gene, with your show, it would teach me from a really early age, no matter what, I was going to be independent. I would take care of myself financially. If I married, I would marry for another reason. It would never be because I had to depend on someone. And um, and that was true for my brothers and sisters and all alike. And, and I just had my 43rd wedding anniversary. So it was interesting. It was a freedom, right? Because I knew I could take care of myself then. What an incredible role model. That's just amazing. And And the fact that your siblings are equally successful says so much about her. I noted you divided your journey to creating good power into three sections of the book. There's me, there's we, and there's us. What does that mean to go from me to we to us? Yeah, this is, um, I kept having this imagery when I wrote the book of life being like when you drop a pebble into water and you see a first circle and a second and a third moving out. And I really wanted to communicate to people that, look, you don't realize it, but as time is going on and you just have life's experiences, you actually have more and more power. It grows with its potency over time. And in the beginning, just logically, it fell into like the lessons I could share around the power of me. Like, what do you learn when you're young? And it's mostly about yourself. It's things about you. It's you-centric, me-centric. 
And so the first part, power of me. But there is a point, and I can't really put an exact date on it, but you start to transfer to say, okay, I care more about other people and care about others than I do myself. It may be your children. It may be because of work. It may be just because of a charity. But you start to feel this. And to me, there's a very different sort of like formula for what you do then. And then over time, it goes into the, you know what? I want people to be really inspired. You actually can change society. Now, big stuff happens a little step at a time. I think that's a real fallacy that people think, you know, God, we have these big problems and we need this one answer to them. It's just not how it happens. And so the power of us is saying, all right, now take that and you really can apply it to societal change. It, for me, that was about creating more opportunity for more people. And so it just logically fell in those three chunks. And I, I think it's true for most people's lives. There's a process in the book, and I like the tactics. We like steps on this show. And and you have, they're not exactly steps, but they're principles that come al- along with creating good power. You came up with them during your career at IBM. And, and I'd love to go through them sort of one by one, because if people are looking for ways to step into their own power, I think they're incredibly helpful. The first one is being in service of. What do you mean? Okay, now, Gina, I have to tell everybody listening, these are not like, oh, I'm brilliant. I had these principles as I was there. These are like, I feel like we're all mosaics of people we learn from. And so this is revisionist history now that I look back and say when I did or when I made mistakes and learned or did something well. Okay, first principle of when you're really trying to change something hard is be in service of. And I have to tell you, there's a big difference between serving something and being in service of. When you're in service of something, you trust that I care that I help Jean achieve her objective. And by doing so, I trust that I will achieve mine in the end. It does not happen in parallel. It could be asynchronous. And so like if you go to dinner, your weight person, he might, he or she bring you warm food. Is that a good evening? Mm, Maybe, maybe not. Maybe. Okay, the person who says, look, I need them to have an enjoyable night because if I do, I trust I'll likely get a tip, a bigger tip here. This idea that they are in service of you, right? And so to me, it's like visceral when you feel it, that it's in service of something. And that's the first thing because I think it's the primary reason why people do things and that if you want to change, you know, what are you in service of? Isn't just to make money. It isn't just to make this thing. What are you in service of? And so like my mom was in service of us as kids, right? And she really cared that we would have a future. It wasn't about just getting a job in the moment or doing something. And so I think that to me, is, is it's like so fundamental to understand that difference between those and be clear what you're in service of. Yeah. Well, your restaurant example makes it completely apparent, right? Yeah. I see the difference between serving and being in service of. You know, I, I, I was just talking to a group, um, well, you, if you've ever gone to like a pizza hut, the young folks, and she had a fantastic example of, she said, you know, the person who cuts your pizza before you get it served to, you know, to your home. And she said, I was working out there with her, and she said to me, no, 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 you've got to get these pieces exactly equal. She said, because this isn't about just an equal-sized piece. Do you realize when this is served as a home and there's three children around the table and one piece is smaller than the other, our job is not 
to have an argument on Sue about who is going to get that bigger little piece, right, and ruin dinner. And she's like, so I think my job is like way more important than just cutting these pieces, right? And I, I think realizing you are there to make them have an enjoyable meal, right, and a family experience. That's the kind of that's, idea. That's fantastic. Second on the list is building belief. What's that? My favorite. It is my favorite. Okay, so now you want to change. Maybe it's about yourself. Build belief is how do you get someone to voluntarily do something that's an alternate reality, you know, that they may not already believe in. So you got to voluntarily get them to do it. And my biggest tip I learned was you must speak to people's head and heart at the same time. So what's an example there? Well, Like an example of that would be, it's a business one I'll use, but I was merging two companies together. Excuse me, I acquired them, okay, for a lot of money. So I was the acquirer of two companies, but I never treated it that way. And instead, to get it to work head and heart, I realized they'd been independent. They were giving up a lot of autonomy. So I would talk about, I understand that feeling that you have. I understand that these are the things you don't like about the place. Um, I understand that this is, you know, you feel that this is a constraint. I understand you think this. I listened a lot to it, right? So I could feel that. And I would instead, I said, look, we will co-create this new way of working. One plus one equals three. But it wasn't just, we are going to operate this way. So I could get people to peel both to their head and heart at the same time. And, you know, part of that was to say to them, in this example I'll use, I spoke a lot about, look, if this doesn't work, I'm going to be fired too, okay? So there, you know, it's a very visceral piece of this about how I felt about this and how they felt. So I think most people do not like talking about feelings. And so to appeal to a head and heart, you have to be comfortable being authentic, telling stories, talking about how you feel, not just telling how something gets done. People don't like it for the same reason they don't like talking about money, because it's emotional. It brings up feelings that maybe you haven't parsed enough to really discuss. Your third principle is knowing what must change, but what must endure. I mean, that's when you're merging two companies, that's what it's all about. Yeah. But even when I speak about the one word I would apply, if you said, okay, what is that? Think of the word how to manage tension. And I think it's true for people who are building a new skill. Like, okay, you want to change a lot about yourself, but not who you are at your soul. And it's this idea to know the difference between these two things. And when you're trying to drive change in anything, there does need to be a basis that people can kind of stand on as a foundation and know, even if it has to be modernized, like what they believe in. And I felt with IBM, when I had to change IBM, people wanted it to be different in so many ways. We're the oldest technology company. And it was always become something else, become something else. Yet when I got too far away from who we were at our soul, that was a problem. And so it's like spending the time. Most people are really quick to say, I changed all these things. They're not quick to address, but what am I really? Like, what is it we are that should endure about us? And that is a really important conversation to have. I don't know that my listeners, many of whom are a little younger, understand the visceral importance that IBM had in people's lives and people's portfolios. I wrote a story for Smart Money magazine. I was a young reporter in the 90s, and IBM stock was down big, and people were not willing to sell. And we wrote a whole story about what it was that the stock and the company 
meant to people. It was it was just it was part of their life and it was part of their legacy and it was part of their family. Yeah, it's a good point you bring up because often I'll say to people, who's IBM, right? If you're, like you say, a younger listener, because we're over 112 years old now, it is the oldest tech company. It is a dividend aristocrat. So these are the companies that have paid an increasing dividend for over 25 years in a row. And it is only one or two degrees of separation, usually I find, between someone who either their relative worked at IBM or that IBM put them through college or their home or their down payment or something through this, this, you know, when you look at a long arc of time, the stock just moves up in a long arc of time. So I would take over in a moment that the country, company was over $100 billion. Now, we've split off pieces and sold pieces since then. But it was not prepared for its next era. It had done so well and had done great financially, but so much had to change. And that would be, like I said, every, every leader gets their moment. And they all ha- everyone has a different challenge. Many of the newer tech companies are facing that moment now about what has to change and and this is a really big piece. And I would learn it wasn't just what a company does or what you do. It would be how work got done, and it would be the skills of the people. Your fourth principle has to do with stewarding good tech. Yeah. I mean, this is the moment to ask that question, right? Is chat GPT good tech? And not yet. Okay. And, and, and this is, if I can, you know, how you started our show together and for people to take away – I don't care if you're a tech company, if you're a company, or you're just a person using tech. I think we all have to be a steward of good tech. I had coined this word, good tech, bad tech, back in 2012. I could start to feel it where people were saying, gee, you know, few people are benefiting from all this tech, but not a lot. And in fact, if you look at the data, you know, the world is kind of polarized. There's no middle class left. There's a, some people making a lot more money, and there's a lot of people making a lot less money or not as much over time in this middle being left out. And those of us that make tech in particular, you know, you have an obligation to prepare society to be able to thrive with the next era. And you have an obligation to have society trust the technology, prepare them to thrive. And I think you have an obligation about an inclusive workforce. So this idea of being good tech to me kind of applies to anybody. And so to your question on, okay, I suspect everyone's used chat GPT. And I really was the first person on AI. So my goodness gracious, I was working on it and I'd invested billions in it in 2012. Okay. So that far back, the world wasn't quite ready for it yet. Didn't quite trust it. And I think what we're seeing right now is this point. We only trust things we can understand and that are explainable to us. And the difference between now and a decade ago, you know, it took Netflix mm, three and a half years to get to one million users, I believe. It took chat five days to get to one million. And now, as you know, it's well over 100 million. So when I say be a steward of good tech, not and in addition to what I just said about, you know, prepare people to thrive and trust it, you got to manage the upside and the downside of the technology in parallel. So don't wait. Like social media, now people are like, well, look at all these bad things. And we're like, okay, we knew they were there years ago and we didn't do anything about them, okay? We get our chance now to birth this, you know, I always say like bring it into society safely so that it augments what we all do with our work. We can trust how it comes up with its answers and they are explainable to us and the right people who own the data benefit from it. These are some like common things. And so we haven't done that with chat yet, but at least there's a big discussion about it right now. 
I think some simple things could have been done when it first came out, like the first day it comes out, I enter in. Who is Mark Rometty? That's my husband. It comes back telling me all he did to transform IBM. Okay. I look at him. He looks at me. You know, his first reaction is, yes, I get credit for everything I've done. <laughs> finally, finally, you know, the man behind the woman. And I'm like, okay, it's wrong. But it sounds so authoritative, right? That's it the problem. Yeah. That is. So my big fear is misinformation, right? And you don't understand how it gets there. This is this type of technology. You don't understand how it comes up with its answers. So in schools, we're the first ones. Oh, kids are cheating. They're, you know, getting their paper written. And so I... I said an easy thing, just it would have been symbolic. The printout you get, have a watermark. You know what a watermark is mm, on a yeah, piece of, of paper? Course. That, okay, it just would have been a signal like, okay, I shouldn't be copying this, all right? I don't own it. It may not be right. I mean, there are a lot of little things we could do. And so, and right now, you kind of laugh at the answers like this, but when they become about your financials or your health care, I'm telling you, you will behave differently. I saw it already. Yeah, I hope so. And I think a lot of people who do what I do are watching those exact things. So that's principle number four. Principle number five is actually my favorite. We're going to make you wait for it for just a second while we take a quick break. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. We work for a lifetime for our money, and we want to make sure that our family, friends, and charities we value most will benefit from all of our hard work once we're gone. When was the last time you thought about how estate planning and your financial plan work together? It can be one of the most important financial moves you'll ever make because of the peace of mind you'll feel once it's all taken care of. Learn more with a complimentary wealth checkup. Schedule yours today at planefe.com slash hermoney or by calling 833-304-PLAN. And we are back with Ginny Rometty, former CEO of IBM and author of the book, Good Power. The fifth item, I, I want to make sure we get to it because it's something that we talk about a lot, which is resilience. And resilience is fascinating to me because like optimism, I know you can learn it. Yeah. So look, a couple pieces of it. I, I felt like, you know, I had really worked on some very hard things over my life. And so I felt like I could be an authority on this topic. I, and I wanted there to be the fifth part of driving big and hard things is resilience. It is really a thing and you can learn it. It starts with your attitude about believing there's always a way forward. You know, for me, you started the show with about my dad. And to me, nothing's ever been as bad as that. So I kind of like when people say, oh, isn't this stressful for you? I'm like, you know what? I've seen bad. This isn't bad. Nothing else can compare. And I think in most people's lives, if they think through, you know, it could be a death, it could be a child, something's happened in their life. Like always remind yourself perspective of what it is that matters and whatever happens. And I witnessed it with my great grandma, my mom, my grandma. There was always a way forward. So it starts there. But I say there's two elements. It's your attitude, which that's part of, and your relationships in the kind of relationships. And look, recognize what you can control and what you can't. People often say that. And even little things, like you notice I have a headband in my hair. People like, I've worn it for like 55 years. I've worn it when it's in style and out of style. They think like this is like a signature. I'm like, no, this is to keep the hair out of my eyes. It is one more thing I can control and not have to worry about. And so point one, focus on what you can control. I talk a lot about compartmentalizing problems 
I used to like mull over an issue over and over. I learned, okay, put a plan in motion, put the box, then put this thing in a box, put it on a shelf, go to the next thing. And I think it's like a really important skill to learn. Otherwise, setbacks are so real. I mean, you can't move forward. You get frozen. The other thing I learned to do was love conflict. Mm. Now, how did you do that? How did you learn that? A couple ways. One was my husband, early in my career, I'd been offered a job. I thought, whoa, this is too big a job for me. And the man I worked for said, go to the interview. I went to the interview. I get offered the job. And my reaction was, mm I would like to go home and talk to my husband. And the person offering me the job said, kind of looked at me strangely, said, okay. I went home. I'm saying to my husband, I just don't know this and that. I would need like two more years and then I could do this job. This is too early. And my husband said only one thing to me. He said, Jenny, do you think a man would have responded that way? I said, no. Now, his point wasn't just about a man. His point was, he's like, why do you do this? Then you learn it and you're fine. It'll be six months. You'll be ready for another thing. And I always say to people, what crystallized in my mind, and this will get to your point, growth and comfort could never coexist. Mm -hmm. So then that means, oh, if I'm uncomfortable, instead of being mm, bad, I would train myself to mean, nope, means you're learning something. So like every time I get not uncomfortable, you know, I'm I'm comfortable, I'm like, oh, this is not good. I'm not growing in any kind of way. I got to go put myself in a riskier position. And I would start to look at risk as a really positive thing. And it happens slowly. But I mean, it would then escalate, as you could see from what I eventually did. And you become comfortable because you associate it with a good thing, not a bad thing. Right. It's such a good point. I mean, the first time you do anything, for most of us, we're going to be scared. But unless there is a first time, you're never going to go through that learning curve. And that is, I think that's tough for a lot of people who are not capable at this point of sitting in that discomfort. And that's true, I think, in particular of a lot of younger people in the workforce today who came into the world in a very different time and a a much harder time than the world that I came into. There is increasing economic instability, inequality, climate change. It can be hard not to feel pessimistic. So clearly you have harnessed optimism along with resilience. What's your advice for continuing to be able to hope that things can change for the better? I am a believer of that, actually, because, I mean, I feel like I've done some really hard things. And even with the government and our laws, regulations, and I have made my way through them. And so it has a lot to do with conviction, too, which would have been another thing I would have said about your attitude. It's conviction, you know, when you do hard things. So I'm optimistic, you know, because as long as there are people willing to try and take one step at a time, we'll make progress. We will. And I am, you know, I, as you know, I do a lot of work on this topic of hiring people for skills, not just their degrees, which I hope we'll talk about. Right. So we're going to talk about it right now. Okay. Yeah. Well, you've championed skills first as a way of hiring. Skills first hiring is and have said this is a way to diversify our workforce. What is it? And how can it help us move forward in a positive way? Well, I'll tell you what it is, and then I'm going to backtrack for why I am so strong a believer of this. So skills first means hire people for their skills, not just if they have a four-year college degree. And then promote them for the same kind of thing. 
Now, I think most of us would say, yes, I want to be treated for my skill, not just if I happen to have gotten a degree or gone into debt for school that that it did or didn't really help me. And I would come upon this in a few ways. I already told you the story of my mom, access and aptitude, not equal. My whole career, I would pivot into jobs I knew nothing about. And I thought, at one point, I built a consulting business. I'd never had an MBA, and everyone had an MBA around me. I would eventually run that business. Now, how did that happen? I said, mm, interesting. I learned this. I didn't actually, I had the skill, but I did it experientially. Mm-hmm. So then I would fast forward, become CEO. I'm looking to hire uh, cyber people. It's 2012. Unemployment's actually quite high in the world. I can't find people. It's a new industry back then. Just, again, back to compartmentalizing, serendipity, I would walk into a meeting on corporate social responsibility. They tell me about, Jen, we're working with a really low-income school in Brooklyn with a community college, CUNY, in New York City, City University of New York, and they, in parallel, can get a high school degree and a associate degree in as fast as possible, six years, doesn't matter. And we're going to help them with the curriculum, give them some mentors. Oh, by the way, we said we'll hire them if we have some jobs. Just a little, you know, yeah, no problem. Well, we hire some. They work out great. I said, well, that's interesting. I come back a year later. How many more have we hired? Uh, They're like, you know, it's under their breath, like uh, five. I said, what did you say? Uh, Five. I'm like, five? And I'm like, why aren't we hiring like lots? I mean, I have like hundreds of openings. They say, no, no, no. Every job we have requires a college degree. Right. Every job, every single job. I said, what? And it would lead me down this, like, truly a decade of, I feel, our unbelievable revelations. One is that, I'll fast forward it and shortcut it, it would take me five years, but I'd rewrite all our job recs. Only 50% of them require a four-year degree to get started, point one. I would find that to be true in almost every company, by the way. Good jobs, good jobs that you could sustain a family of four, 50% are over-credentialed to start. It became easy as a tick box for HR. Next thing, I said, well, how many people in the U.S. have a college degree? I guess I'd never paid attention. 65% 65% do not, and 80% of Black Americans do not. Oh, well, I guess we've just cut everyone out of good jobs and for no good reason. Then when I was on my program and we'd start hiring, I look and I say, oh, my God, this talent pool is so successful, and they're all diverse, okay? Unluck like my mom of being in the wrong places in the wrong time didn't mean they weren't smart. And then I would say, okay, I have a lot of engineers. They're like, You're dumbing down the workforce by doing this. I said, well, we got to prove now that that's not true. And I would prove, again, I've been at this now longer than anybody has. Well, 75% of my folks went in and got college degrees. They just never had that opportunity before. Okay, all capable. We have our first PhD. And they performed as well, took them a little longer, as well as my college degree folks, took more education, more loyal, more retentive. I would say to people, like, what do you not like about this formula for a great workforce. Now, I believe a diverse workforce is a better one. I've taught it since I was a baby that, you know, the more diverse, the better product I will have. Okay. So it's not altruistic. It's is really business. So I would then go on a crusade like every country in the world. And if you talk jobs, any president of any country will talk to you. And we would get this going in 30 countries. And then would come the death and the murder of George Floyd. And all my colleagues, it's like, how can business help? How can they help? Yeah. And um, 
Two gentlemen I'm good friends with, Ken Chenault ran American Express, Ken Frazier ran Merck. They're the two senior black leaders in our country, businessmen. They're like, well, we should do what business does best, provide jobs, because economic opportunity is the best answer to systemic racism. I agree 100% on that. I saw this in my family, my mother, right? This is economic opportunity is the great equalizer. And I'm like, okay, my buddies had the vision, but they did not know how to have it happen because you can't just hand jobs out without skill. And I said, aha, as I call them, the visionaries, and I am their plumber. I'm like, I know how to do this. This is this world of skills first because if you move to it, I have proven there are so many people qualified out there or we can get them the skills to be qualified to start. Yeah, no, it led you to 110, which is now this coalition of 70 companies committed to hiring and upskilling Black talent. It's so inspirational. And I got to tell you, I think that you are already spreading the gospel. I live in Philadelphia. We just had a mayoral race. The woman who won, first black woman mayor of the, well, she's not mayor yet, but she will because it's she won the Democratic primary. That's just what happens in Philadelphia. But I went to a number of campaign events and debates, and all the candidates were talking about this. They were talking about getting rid of the four-year college requirement and bringing in diversity into the workforce by doing it this way. And it's true. I think you're leading something very, very important. I got one more question. And look, you have had this amazing career and experienced a position that not many women in this country get to experience running one of the biggest companies in our country. What is your number one piece of advice for women who are coming into the workforce or maybe already in the workforce who have aspirations of really rising to the C-suite, running something someday? You know, it's going to be related to my growth and comfort. It would be about taking risks. Because while that is a piece of advice that applies to men and women, I have found it resound, you know, like so strong. With Women are their greatest own critics. And as many studies as you know, Jean, you've had on the show prove, you'll think of the eight things you can't do versus the eight you can do. I mean, every time you are your best critic. And that point about be willing to take risk, and it comes in little ways, is what I would say to them. And honestly, I've talked about this with many of my women friends that have also come into these jobs. None of us set out saying, you know what, I am going to be the CEO of a company. I mean, and some do, and that's, God bless the women who can do that. And the others of us that it became a, you just did the next thing really well, and the next thing really well, and the next thing really well. Now, I will say, I was blessed to work for companies that are steeped in values. And you also talked about trust at the beginning of the show. And I think that, you know, trust is doing what you say over and over and when no one's watching. And, you know, pick who you work for. You get a choice to do that because there are a lot of companies that that do act in that way and really believe a diverse workforce is the best. And therefore, everyone, it's a meritocracy, right, has a chance to, you know, move forward. And a little of it is let life unfold. I watch so many young people today. They're like, okay, I got to do this, then this, then this. And I think back, and all of us did, we're like, mm, that's not really what we did. We, And it doesn't mean it's still true today. But with each thing we did, it opened up other doors. And so a little of it is let life unfold would be another piece of advice, as hard as that is. 
Ginny Rometty, thank you so much for all of this. The new book is called Good Power, Leading Positive Change in Our Lives, Work, and World. You should all read it, and thank you. Please come back again. This was just a delight. Love to. Thank you, Jean. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. And we are back with my daughter, Julia, for our mailbag. Hey, Jules. You can't get enough of me. I can't. Well, now that you've had time to reflect, Julia and I spent the weekend together in LBI for Mother's Day, and we made fresh pasta, and we watched two of my favorite movies. Now that you've had time to reflect, what's your verdict on the pasta? I still liked the pasta. You thought it was too thick, but I guess we just need an upgrade and we need to get a pasta roller and not hand roll our pasta. But I think it was tasted like it was made with love. It was made with love. It was delicious. I mean, it was it was delicious. We made ravioli. Julia made an amazing vodka sauce, and we filled it with some ricotta, lemon, parmesan. It was, I mean, it was delicious. It was just I was rolling the pasta out with a rolling pin, and I don't think I got it thick enough. Of the two movies, we watched mm-hmm. In Her Shoes and The Wedding Date. Your favorite? I think the wedding date, I think In Her Shoes started a bit slower and the wedding date, I was like into it off the cusp, but both excellent rom-coms that I hadn't seen before. So definitely adding to the repeat repertoire very shortly. You'll watch it again. Exactly. All right. Well, I'm glad that you like them. In her shoes and and most of Jennifer Weiner's work, she wrote the book that was turned into that movie is is one of my all-time favorites. And I just, I love Shirley MacLaine yeah. in pretty much anything, but also in that movie. So thank you for spending Mother's Day with me. And thanks for spending it with me. I was happy to Who be with you. Who else are you going to spend it with, really? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Should we dive in? Let's do it. Our first question today comes to us from an anonymous listener. She writes... Hi, Jean. I discovered your show in 2020 and have been a faithful listener since. Your show really helped keep me entertained throughout the pandemic. I'm a 29-year-old California state government employee working as a scientist. I have been with the state for three and a half years, with a master's and two and a half years of pre-government experience, and I would like to continue my career in government. I am looking for advice for how to save for early retirement with a pension. I'm super lucky. I know. 
My salary is just under $89,000 a year, and I will receive a 5% annual increase until I cap out at 95. After that, I will need to apply for a higher job classification to get a pay increase. That will cap out at $109,000. I'm trying not to count on my pension too much, but my goal of retiring at age 55 seems a little far away without it. If I retire at 55, my pension is estimated to be $3,500 a month if I get a promotion. I currently contribute 13% of my salary to a 401k with a balance of $47,000. It has low fees and is invested in a variety of index funds for a slightly aggressive allocation. I plan on increasing my contribution by 2% each year until my salary caps out. I also have maxed out my Roth IRA in the past few years, and it has a balance of $30,000. It is invested in a mix of small, mid, and large-cap growth and value index funds. No bonds. My apartment rent plus parking utilities is 50% of my take-home pay, but I am planning on moving in with my boyfriend in a few months. I would also like to buy a house and plan for wedding and kids in the next few years. I have around $40,000 in a variety of HYSAs, CDs, and an I bond for these expenses and an emergency fund. I contribute $100 to this general pot of funds each month. I have about 7500 invested in two total market index funds and some random single stocks. No reoccurring contributions. I also have 9000 invested with Betterment for a future baby fund that auto-adjusts the stock bond allocations as time goes on. I contribute 200 a month to this fund. I also have about 600 in a 529 that I contribute 25 a month to. It seems like no matter how much of my salary I put away, early retirement plus one to two kids seems difficult in all of the retirement calculators without factoring in my pension. Is it wise to rely on my pension for retirement planning? I love my government job, but is it smarter to build in flexibility in case I move into the private sector? Should I keep trying to max out my Roth IRA and just contribute as much as I can to my 401k? P.S. I am thankful to not have any debt. A loaded question. It is a loaded question, but she's killing it. Yeah, you're doing great. You are doing amazingly well. And I just want to go back for a second to the retirement benchmarks that we tend to rely on on this show. And they're a series of retirement benchmarks that were developed by Fidelity Investments that basically say, by the time you are 30, you should have about one time your annual salary put away for retirement. You're there. By the time you're 40, three times. By the time you're 50, six times. By the time you're 60, eight times. And by the time you retire, 10 times. And that money should be enough to provide for about 80% of your pre-retirement income for the next 30 years. This calculation also doesn't take into account a pension. So the way these numbers were jiggered up, when you get to that 10 times of your income, the amount that will replace about 80% of your pre-retirement income when combined with Social Security it's expected that the amount in your 401k is going to cover about 45% of what you need, 45% of your prior salary. 
But if you've got a pension, you don't have to cover the full 45%. If your pension covers 15%, you only have to cover the other 30, which is an awful lot of numbers. And so what I would say to you at this point is you're saving extremely aggressively. I question the need to be saving for college for kids who do not exist yet. I think that that is something that you may want to push off until you've got kids that are about to enter the picture. I get why you want to do it. I know college costs an arm and a leg. I know student debt is a big problem, but I might take the money and put it into a house fund instead because I think that is more likely to come down the road first. And if you leave the employment of the government as a scientist and you go into private industry, my guess is that your salary will jump substantially. You take those scientific skills, those STEM skills, and you put them to work in biotech. You put them to work in pharma. You put them to work in some other sort of industry that needs those skills you're going to earn more than you're earning as an employee of the government of California. And that's a choice, right? I spent much of the day today in a forum where I moderated a consumer panel. And on my panel was a man who spent most of his career as a police officer, and his wife was a government employee. They both had pensions. They both feel incredibly lucky. Perhaps their salaries were not as high as they could have been, but as they look retirement in the face, and they are both 55 years old exactly, they're looking at a lifetime of protected income from those pensions. So it's very, very difficult to predict where you're going to be in your career five years from now, 10 years from now, who you're going to work for. But I would just keep saving at the rate that you're saving, maybe funneling the money into slightly different investments. And because you're doing so much so early, I normally would not say to somebody before they're 30, hey, maybe you should sit down with a financial advisor and have a checkup. I'm going to say it to you. Maybe you should sit down with a financial advisor and have a checkup because I think it would help you hone your goals. I think it would help you figure out what your priorities actually are and then you can decide where your money's going to go. But please don't worry. You are the last person in the world that should worry. I'm going to ask a question that may be obvious to some people, but I'm on here to ask the questions that are not obvious to the other people. So is there a thing as investing to spread out? Like when I read this, this person is clearly doing a great job, but she is investing like something in everything. Is that the advised tactic or should she like, you know, do less of No, a it's lot a great question. Do you, do you know what I'm asking? I do know what you're asking. And you're asking about what I like to call the investment hierarchy. And the way that we think about where the next dollar goes is what are the advantages attached to that dollar? So if I had a dollar to invest and I had done nothing, well, first of all, you finish the 401k investment, right? 
even though you don't get a match on every single dollar, you max that out because there are tax advantages there. Then you look at other tax-advantaged investments like IRAs, like 529s, like health savings accounts. And if you still have money to invest, when you get through maxing out all of those things, then you look at a high-yield savings account, which she has, an HYSA. You might want to look at CDs. You might want to look at just a holding pen for your money. Probably it would be a high-yield savings account that you could use to fund your ambitions to buy a house. But yeah, we don't just spread it out just because. We try to get the best return on every dollar possible. It sounds to me like she's doing a lot of that. But you're right. There may be a point at which you're diversifying too much. And I think that is a reason to talk to an advisor as well. At some point, this many accounts and this many different investments might get a little hard to keep track of. Totally. But she's doing great. You're doing great. I I wish I could give you a hug and tell you you are doing great. You're doing great. All right. Our next question comes from Catherine. She writes, Hello. My son recently started a part-time job at his university and is being offered an opportunity to invest in the university's voluntary investment program. It's a 403B. They do not offer any matching contributions. My question is, would it be better for him to just invest in a Roth for now? My reasoning, he doesn't really need the tax benefits of a 403B. They don't match. He only has a small amount he can contribute. And this way, he can use the funds toward a down payment on a house someday. Thank you for any advice. A great question. And by the way, a great question that syncs up so nicely with our previous question. So thank you, Chelsea, our producer, for pulling them together from our mailbag. I would probably say that it's better for him to put the money in a Roth in this situation. And the reason is he's looking for that flexibility. So when you put money in a Roth IRA, you have the ability to pull it out before retirement to pay for both a first house and education. If you're looking for that flexibility, that could be a good thing to do. The benefit of the 403B or any other work-based retirement plan, even without a match, is that it's automatic. And my favorite money rule is money rule number 11. If you don't see it and you don't touch it, you won't spend it. Automation like this, where the money is swiped directly out of your paycheck and into a retirement plan at work, is why these plans are so magical. And so if he does this, if he goes with the Roth, I would set up a series of automatic contributions so that every time he gets paid, money comes out of his checking account where the paycheck lands and goes directly into that Roth IRA wherever you decide to set it up. It's super easy. You only have to do it once. He's probably a very good candidate for a robo-advisor. All of the big institutions have robo-advisors these days, but there are other standalone robo-advisors as well. And that's the direction I would send him in. And then just remember that when he tells you that he 
just got a raise, give him a nudge to start sending more money to that Roth IRA till he gets to the point where he is maxing out. Make sense, Jules? Makes total sense, I think. It was a straightforward one, this one. And if you have any other money-related questions, we would love to hear from you. Just send them to us by emailing mailbag at hermoney.com. Now we're going to take a quick break. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobier. I'm the co-host of MindShift, the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom. It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back with your money tip of the week. Estate planning is not usually something people like to talk about, but I think we need to talk about it a lot more. If you haven't sat down to plan for what might happen after death, let this be your reminder to start that conversation with your family ASAP. The first step is simple. Draft a will to spell out what will happen to your assets and who will care for your kids if you have them. You can expect to pay a few hundred dollars for an estate planning attorney to help you write your will. Depending where you live, you might also be able to get some free estate planning forms from your local or state bar association or a local nonprofit law firm. And remember, estate planning isn't just for the old. It is never too early to start. You can find out more at hermoney.com. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Ginny Rometty for her insightful advice on how business leaders can use their power for good. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. This show is produced by CDM Sound Studios and Chelsea Zhu. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. Hold up. 